Hi, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Samantha Sharpman Sizik, Executive Director of the Marconi Society, a nonprofit situated at the intersection of advanced technology and digital inclusion that advocates for a digitally inclusive world. It's December 9th, and we're so pleased to co-sponsor this virtual City Club Forum with the Cleveland Foundation. During the COVID-19 pandemic, as more people attend work, school, shop for groceries, speak with their doctors, and connect with family and friends via the internet, almost half of the world's population has no internet access. Here in Cuyahoga County, the trend for some residents is not much better. According to the American Community Survey, nearly one in four households have no internet access of any kind. That means no home connectivity and no wireless access. More than half of the households making less than $20,000 a year and more than 37% of all seniors are fully unconnected. Think about that the next time you connect with your doctor through a patient portal or use online bill pay. Think about this as we head into the holiday season when so many of us will shop for gifts online, use Zoom and Google Meet to see family and friends while staying home. Access to the internet is imperative to our society and it is critical infrastructure for any community. Make no mistake, Many people at all levels of government and industry are working on ways to close the digital divide. As we speak, there are 42 pieces of legislation, 42 in both the House and the Senate, that provide resources to address the variety of digital inclusion problems we see across the country. But the federal government cannot solve this problem alone. Digital inclusion is a local challenge. Communities must determine for themselves which options are available to meet their unique needs and which technologies are best suited to their specific geographies, populations, and infrastructure landscapes. To begin today's exploration, I am exceedingly pleased to introduce you to two of the world's foremost experts in information and community and communication technology. Dr. Aragaswamy Paul Raj and Dr. John Chiaffi. Dr. Aragaswamy Paul Raj is a Marconi Society Fellow and recipient of both the Padma Bhushan and the IEEE Alexander Graham Bell Medal. He is celebrated for his pioneering contributions to developing the theory and application of MIMO antennas. Now, you might not have heard of that technology before, but Every Wi-Fi router and 4G phone in use today uses MIMO technology that he created. Dr. John Chiaffi is also a Marconi Society Fellow and recipient of the IEEE Alexander Graham Bell Medal. Currently, Dr. Chiaffi is the chairman and CEO of ASIA Incorporated. He is cited for pioneering the research that led to the creation of DSL. That's right. He also designed the world's first ADSL and VDSL modems and holds patents for both, along with more than 100 others heavily used throughout the industry. If you're joining from home today, there's a really good chance that you're doing so because of the innovation of these two luminaries. So let's begin. 
Today's format is a little bit different than what you normally see during a City Club virtual forum. First, both Dr. Chiaffi and Dr. Paul Raj will deliver short presentations. Then we'll be, bring in uh, Dr. Nigamath Sridhar, Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at Cleveland State University for a moderated conversation. Then we'll end as we always do with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the city club. We'll try to work them in. So now we begin our forum with a presentation from Dr. John Chiaffi. Dr. Chiaffi, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Uh, thank you, Samantha. I'm happy to be there. And let me, let me, I'm seeing the blue things. Let me turn off my light again. Somebody turn it on here. Hang on. Okay. So um, again, uh, happy to be with you and try to uh, give you uh, my thoughts on the area of broadband and understand some of the issues that are pertinent to the city of Cleveland uh, when we were preparing for this, just to give you a little bit of background and maybe some of my biases on this. I've been in telecommunications research and development for many years. Some big companies, the, the old Bell Labs and IBM, been at Stanford for many decades, but I've also started a couple of companies. Uh, one was the one that did the DSL work that was mentioned and went public. Uh, in 1995, was number two growth, uh, growth stock for a while, and then was acquired by Texas Instruments, uh, and then Asia Inc., uh, which has about 120 employees around the globe and services uh, internet, really helps service internet for about 40 major service providers. And I've served on quite a few uh, boards of directors as well. Um, my focus is on internet access, wireline wireless, and um, basically uh, using artificial intelligence and techniques, adaptive techniques to uh, to improve. So that's where I come from, somewhat academic, somewhat industrial, and uh, temper anything I say in that context. So broadband access, um, uh, if you're not so familiar with it, it's basically how the internet connects to you and your end device. Uh, typically, there are a number of different segments to a network. There's the in-home network that's often your Wi-Fi network, but it could be your 4G or 5G connection to your, your smartphone or tablet. Uh, and then there are many ways to get to the home, fiber, copper alternatives like coaxial cable or DSL on twisted pairs, or wireless alternatives are increasingly uh, occurring as well. And that's often called the access network. And so broadband access applies to that segment. And then behind that, typically you have the core uh, of your network. Now, what I, I thought I might do is to give you an idea of what it costs per premises. Um, the uh, largest government broadband program, I know it's not Cleveland here, but there are there's public information available on this, is in Australia, where the government basically took over broadband and has a company that they own completely and delivers service uh, there. And basically what they have listed here are the costs and in dollars, these are Australian dollars. So multiply by about 0.75 or take three quarters, if you will, to get the cost in uh, in US dollars. But these different alternatives here, the one on the left, um, FTTP, Brownfields, Greenfields, that's fiber all the way to your home. And you can see that's the most expensive. Brownfield means that your home already exists. Greenfield means that they're building your home 
and it's actually cheaper to get the fiber there, obviously, if they're still in the process of building. Fiber to a node means they try to get close, but not all the way. They use the copper the rest of the way. Fiber to the curb is a little further uh, away. Hybrid fiber coax uses the coax uh, to get to your home. And then fixed wireless over on the right. So these are their costs. And you can see this is, this is not cheap, averaged over the millions of connections there. It's very representative of the rest of the world as well. A company's called NBN, their next broadband network in, in Australia. And then to give you a kind of an idea of the proportions in their network of these different alternatives that are connecting at these different prices. So that's what it costs to build these networks per subscriber. And you can see everything's a few thousand dollars as you start to get beyond just using the existing facility. The more fiber you put in, uh, the more expensive it gets. And so fiber to the premises and 5G fixed are the most expensive today. Others use some of the existing facilities to get there. So you may be thinking about that if you're applying for um, loans or, or programs, um, subsidies from the U.S. government. How much does it cost per, per home, if you will, to get connected? And then here's um, basically a chart, again, from that same group so that you have something to compare with. What they saw the data rate needs of people. So working at home, for instance, they, uh, they had uh, uh, downstream bandwidth means towards, towards you and upstream bandwidth means uh, away from you, 60 megabits per second, um, uh, for instance, there. Other things, video, 10, 25, you can see these different numbers. These are the speeds they're finding for these different types of applications people use on the internet. So I'll give you an idea of the uses and then the costs. Now, why does it cost so much? Um, this is a question that, that and it's often, it's often hidden in the press and, and in the advertising of the major uh, internet service providers. They don't like to tell you the, the, the full cost that it takes. And it's why we don't have fiber to everyone's home in the world. In fact, it's, it's like 10, 15% of networks in most developed countries and less than that in underdeveloped countries is because if you look at the network, typically there's some central point like a central office, and then they run basically cables or fiber out from that in different directions. And then though those may be really fat cables if they had twisted pairs in them. And those service maybe hundreds of thousands of homes. And so any cost for replacing it with fiber gets divided by the number of homes served. But as you try to magnify this and get a little closer, you start branching off of that and there are fewer and fewer homes served. So the cost of digging that trench or putting the fiber in and that the, the construction costs there uh, only get divided by a smaller number of homes. And then of course, as you connect to the actual homes, this is where you hear the terms home past, that green part's not there yet. And that is, in fact, the most expensive part to connect it to your home. So um, now superimposing this all together, you get an idea of how this cost magnifies. So getting part of the way is a whole lot cheaper than going all the way. To give you a, a, some idea of these, these different things, again, um, $3,000 per subscriber, you probably get about a gigabit per second if you get fiber all the way to your home. At the other end, if you have an ADSL subscription, it's one to eight megabits per second, but it uses no fiber at all. And then if you use uh, maybe if you have a shorter loop, you can get a higher speed on that if you're closer to the central office, a little bit less. But this is tens of dollars per sub to do that. You get fiber part of the way, you get within maybe a, a mile and a half or three kilometers, you'd see $150 per sub. You get closer yet to within about a mile, 
and that costs in the 200 to 250 dollars per connection get even closer to the last half a mile or so or less and now you're seeing 300 to 500 you get within a few hundred meters or a few football fields away and it's $1,500 per subscriber. So it gets exponentially faster and more expensive to put fiber all the way to somebody's home. So again, looking at 5G, um, really the earliest advances in this have been for companies or enterprises. I give you an idea of the number of devices that are expected to be connected and when for 5G. Uh, this chart here uh, gives you an idea. So it's something that's going to happen over the next uh, 10 years or so. Perception in the U.S. sometimes is everybody else is ahead in 5G. Europe, they think the U.S. is ahead. Asian uh, perceives themselves as ahead. And um, some of the underdeveloped parts of the world uh, may leapfrog by just starting with these technologies as they go forward. And I assume Paul will talk more about wireless. So conclusions here. Um, and happy to get your questions later. Internet access, speed, and amount of money basically scale together. Fiber to everybody's home is exorbitantly expensive. We've been talking about it for 40 years in the United States, and there's roughly 10 to 15% of the homes that actually have this connected uh, to their home today. Everything else uses some other medium uh, to get there. And the reason is the cost. Now, there are a number of alternatives that allow an underserved population to have good access. It may not be quite the gigabit per second access, but pretty good in terms of the application served for a whole lot less money. And that's uh, one of the things my company helps the uh, telcos do. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Samantha and Paul. Hi, and now we're going to be turning it over to uh, Professor Paul Raj. Uh, professor, it's you are on. So I'm uh, emeritus professor at Stanford. I spent a long career in India when he'd been at Stanford the last 25 years. And they've been around uh, wireless technology is around this invention called MIMO, which Samantha talked about. And I've been a little bit involved with industry here too, uh, in Silicon Valley. And uh, so I'm going to, I think John set up a nice uh, uh, situation, uh, a nice presentation on the, uh, on um, broadly on around access and uh, fixed and a little bit about wireless. So let me dig a little bit more into it. So, uh, so you know, so it's a, so. What is broadband? Uh, in, because you're focused on internet equity a lot. So, what's broadband? Who gets it? This is a complicated, uh, complicated subject. It is. What do we actually need? Uh, uh, you know, where does US stand? Uh, what are the service providers providing? Uh, mostly US uh, uh, context uh, screen, and. Uh, uh, percentage of homes which have internet or don't have internet, so on and so forth. So it's it's complicated. And uh, so I think the only point I wanted to make here was that uh, when we look at internet equity, we need to figure out uh, who doesn't have it, uh, what speed they really need, and what technologies they can get. So I'm only stating the point that this is a complicated animal, hard to summarize in one screen, in, in, in a short presentation. So now I've gone to the third slide. And uh, and this is uh, uh, shows wireless, but uh, I'm focusing wireless on home density versus access technology. So wireless is also a player and is actually growing in its importance. And uh, so if you look at uh, urban, which is more than 1,200 homes, or suburban, say between 12 to 1,200 homes, and rural less than 12 homes per square mile, 
Uh, Wireless uh, is a player, and uh, it comes through a couple of three different technologies. One is cellular. So essentially, you're repurposing cellular mobile technology for fixed access. So I'm talking about fixed access here. So, uh, and there in cellular, you have two bands, the high band and the mid band. I'll talk about that later. And in urban, you also have another uh, another technology called MDN, millimetric uh, uh, band distributed uh, distribution networks, millimetric band distribution network, MDN. And uh, so that has begun to grow. It's still very early. So I would put these two uh, technologies, cellular and MDN, as uh, as players in the urban area. Suburban, it is MDN, uh, is better suited there, and potentially cellular too, but in a lower frequency, the mid-band. And uh, in rural, it's uh, always a challenge, and uh, satellites have been begun to play a bigger role now. I'll talk about that. In fact, people are very, uh, very uh, positive about satellites going forward. And certainly, cellular can play a lower role by using low bands. And there's a new technology called supercell I'll talk about. So essentially, we have uh, wireless can come in cellular form or MDN or satellite. So let me pick up cellular, uh, which is really your, your mobile technology. And uh, uh, today, 5G, which John mentioned, uh, has a deployment in the millimetric band, called the high band, it's 24 gigahertz to 30, 39, 40 gigahertz in the US. AT&T and Verizon are deploying this. And one of the areas that they want to serve also beyond mobility is also serve fixed wireless. So uh, uh, so we have probably uh, uh, 5G in the high band. There are probably not too many. I think perhaps less than 10 million, less than 5 million customers in the millimetric band today in the US. We now have an iPhone, which actually supports this band. And, uh, and AT&T and Verizon also rolling out for fixed access, where you have a CPE, outdoor CPE, or consumer premises equipment. So, uh, so in high band, we have uh, probably cells are pretty small, 200, 200 meters. We can probably deliver about 400 meters busy hour, uh, 400 megabits per second busy hour downlink. Typically, in outdoor, you need an outdoor box to pick up the signal. And the monthly billing, I'm not, not very clear, very sure, but probably it'll be around 60 to $70. The next band is the mid-band. And uh, this is typically 2.5, is already deployed in LTE, but also potentially 3.5 band in the gigahertz band in the 5G. We just, FCC is allocating another 180 megahertz very soon. This can go to larger cells, 800, mega, 800 meters cell radius. And uh, probably, you know, in busy yard, deliver about 150 megabit per second. And uh, here you'll have to put a box either indoor CP on a kitchen on a kitchen table, or potentially better still, a box outside outside on the under the eave. And this is again targeted at suburban where you have a lower density. And the fourth one is 4G, which is the one we are already using today, and they can be deployed in the low band that is below say 1.2 gigahertz. You get larger cells, three kilometers. Um, you get lower speeds, of course, and potentially, again, with some caution, potentially could be a player in a rural where uh, you have large cells, and it might it might it might play a role. The, uh, the just a, this is a fun picture. Uh, recently, there's been a technology to take uh, uh, a mid band or at least uh, two point five gigahertz LTE. 
and put it on a very high tower. It's called supercell, where you, you know, these towers are. Uh, this uh, and these are balls which have uh, which have sectors in them. So this, uh, we have 36 sectors over here, and then, uh, at this point we are installing this about 600 feet above the ground in Mississippi. Uh, it was done by Facebook. I, I've been working with them. And we can cover in one cell 25 times the area of a standard LTE cell. So it's attractive. And I think Facebook claims that it'll be about 50 40% cheaper than standard LTE uh, micro, micro cells. So this might become developed further, be a player for rural too. The other technology is, uh, uh, apart from cellular is, is what's called millimetric band distribution networks. So I've been involved with this for some years now. Again, uh, it started off with Facebook doing some work here, but there are lots of other technologies available now, particularly rural, where uh, you can, from a fiber pop, you jump to one house and you can jump house to house, typically about 200 meters a pop, uh, a jump up to 200 meters maximum. And from one fiber, you can feed about 20 homes. Uh, busy are 300 megabit per second, uh, typically a rooftop CPE. Very cheap, actually, only about thirty or forty dollars each, and uh, I think the monthly billing of I'm on a board of a company which actually rolls this out. Uh, I think we sort of bill at sixty dollars a month. So this is uh, getting really, really cheap and uh, can really scale. I think to well beyond three hundred megabit per second. So this, I, I believe, will be a, a ongoing a, a strong player. The third one, of course, is is, is an old story called of satellite. Uh, somehow satellites uh, for voice have never never really entirely made it. Uh, there are a lot of new players like Starlink and Viasat, which have now come online. And uh, 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 I think the sorry the the, the throughput is probably uh, if you look at Starlink, it's about 40 megabits downlink, and you need a rooftop CPE and antenna like that. I think the Starlink current billing uh, is about 99 dollars. Now, there's a lot of uh, feeling that for rural broadband, part of rural, we can never, never get, you know, really high speeds like a gigabit per second, which we will have, we will see in cities fairly soon in rural by using terrestrial networks. So you really have to go to satellites. So 6G, which is the next generation of wireless, is not yet, right? even the standards haven't started, a lot of focus on using uh, satellites to deliver very high speed to rural. At satellite, it doesn't matter your urban or rural, the diagnostics or rural can benefit by this. A lot of work going on in China in this area. So uh, with that, let me sort of look at uh, serving the underserved. Uh, one point here is this, is that typically the monthly building is about $60, $70. I think that's also true for, for cellular, mobile cellular. Uh, an interesting viewpoint point is that in India, you know, which I have a lot of connections to, uh, uh, you know, there's something called R2, average revenue per, per month, per user, per month. It's about 60 to $70 in the U.S., thereabouts. In India, uh, the, the, the carrier's R2 is only about $1 to $3. I think the geo, which is the most popular, is about 2 to $3. The government carriers $1. Uh, they use exactly the same equipment as we use here in the United States. How do they make it happen there? So that's the conundrum we need to look into it. I won't have time to get into it. But uh, in general, if you look at wireless, technology is getting more and more cheaper. I mean, it is getting cheaper. And, uh, and it's always a strong story there. 
operation OPEX, the cost of operating networks, wireless always had this thing you have to keep visiting sites to reorient antenna, changing parts. That's also getting better. And I've seen uh, a uh, situation where you install once, you don't never touch that, uh, that, that network again for many, for many, many years. So it's getting cheaper. CapEx is also dropping in price. Uh, and there's competition because the, the many wireless plays and along because it's also fiber and, and DSL that John talked about. I think the real problem to getting a lowering cost is the business model. I think if we really want to get the pricing down to $20 a month, 20 megabit per second, four nines of reliability, something like downtime of one or two hours a year, the real problem is the business model. And I've seen that in companies I'm involved with. We typically want to use only uh, pick only customers who can actually uh, you know are, are likely to pay their, their monthly bills, so they tend to drop people uh, on the weaker economic sections. So this is blocking a reduction of. So we need uh, something else to make this happen. So it's complicated. So I'll just end by saying, you know, broadband access remains poor for 15 percent of U.S. population. I think Washington State and I think uh, maybe. Uh, uh, New uh, New Hampshire were very good. Mississippi is really bad. And this is here a huge challenge. Rapid, uh, a lot of rapid progress in wireless technology, but business models are really a, a block to internet equity. And I think satellites has uh, always been a laggard, may become actually a dominant technology in 6G, particularly solve the rural problem. So thank you, uh, and I'll, I'll stop. Thank you very much, Dr. Polraj and Dr. Dr. Chiafi, uh, for your um, uh, for your uh, remarks. Um, we'll um, uh, we'll go through a, a couple of um, questions that I'd like to um, uh, have you um, focus a little bit on our um, Cleveland context here. Um, again, uh, for those for those who are watching, uh, in a few moments we'll turn to your questions. If you have questions for either Dr. John Chiafi or Dr. Uh, Polraj. Um, please text them to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794, and I'll uh, try and work them in. Uh, you can also tweet your question to uh, questions um, at the City Club. So, um, so, so th thank you both for um, for this um, really broad um, conversation and broad presentation, talking about the technical um, uh, elements of what it means to connect. Um, so just so just to sort of level set and, and have people understand what these things mean um, uh, from, from a consumer side, uh, could you talk a little bit about um, when you talk about these kinds of speeds, what kinds of services become accessible um, over over these uh, these kinds of uh, uh, connectivity and speeds? So so why, why does it make why, do, why is it important for somebody to have you know fiber to the home, for example? What can you do with that kind of technology? That than without. Well, the uh, the honest answer to that today is not not that much. Um, the latency uh, at a higher speeds, the delay it takes to get the packet across the link is less, and that can be important to some unusual applications like gamers or that who may want to to have that, but need in a single household for gigabit per second speeds is, is it would be extremely atypical. It's usually a few tens of megabits to a hundred megabit per second is the 
range. And you saw that on one of the charts that I, I put up and that will cover, you know, multiple video streams and people uh, maybe doing a, a voice call over, over their internet connection, surfing the web. Uh, those types of things that we all tend to do are, are within that, that range of, of speed of sub 100 megabit per second. Yeah, I will add that, uh, you know, uh, for example, if we look at Netflix streaming, uh, you probably need uh, something like 20 megabits to, uh, 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 or 5 megabits to get HD, you know, assuming a house may have one or two streams and you have internet. So I think, uh, uh, you know, people like to see higher, higher uh, throughputs, uh, particularly during busy hour when everybody's uh, dialing in. But I think uh, on the lower end, uh, in terms of internet equity, I think getting everybody to at least 20 megabits uh, as a minimum uh, per home uh, would uh, be a big uh, game changer. Uh, but of course, people may need more, uh, but uh, but I think 20 megabits will be pretty good to get it get it started. Right. So so I actually that's 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 really helpful. Um, and 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 just to sort of um, uh, you know level set. Um, if you you know when when Samantha uh, did the introduction, she talked about. The, the fact that there were large segments of Cleveland that were just either totally unconnected or, or unconnected or severely underconnected, um, even to be able to access basic things, right? I mean, like, you know, today, given everybody is going to school from home or working from home, um, you know, the, the idea that you have to have some connection itself is a, is a big uh, problem. Um, you know, and so while, while we're, we're, you know, things like watching multiple Netflix streams May seem like a luxury, right? Um, you know, the, the the what I'm getting from this conversation is that you know the the plumbing that we're talking about, the the technical infrastructure, it, you know, it doesn't really matter in terms of what kinds of services. And if we want to think about these 21st century city kinds of services where people are accessing what they would normally do going to the BMB or going to a, a city office and things like that over the internet, then that becomes even more important. Um, so actually, Dr. Jeffrey, uh, you, you mentioned um, uh, the the option of the, the whole lot less money option, if you will, right? Um, you know, the, the kinds of technologies that you're working on with Asia. Um, so, you know, like, can you talk a little bit more about things like quality of service? What kinds of services can you um, can you deploy on a, on, a, on a connection that is set up in that way, which is, in fact, easier and perhaps cheaper to set up than perhaps a, you know, a, a stream that can get gigabit access all over the place? Well, yeah, that, that is the question for, uh, for a situation where you, you don't have tens of billions or, or whatever to invest um, to get a wide scale fiber to the, to the home, but you tend to see um, really everywhere. And some places, there's only one, one country in the world, it's gonna surprise everybody, where they have 100% fiber to the home. And, uh, and I know the guy who was in charge of that company who deployed, uh, and they did spend $8,000 per, per home, but there's only a million homes. So they spent the $8 billion to connect them all. And it's United Arab Emirates, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, if you will, because of oil money, basically, they were able to afford that for their citizenry. But typically, that's not the case. Singapore is pretty close, also an extremely wealthy and small uh, nation. But most of the, the big... Um, countries, while the politics may be such that different groups, it doesn't matter which party you're in, will say that they're going to make the internet a priority and, and connect everywhere and spend. But the reality is that that money just doesn't exist to be able to do that. So how can you take the capital that you can invest 
and do it wisely and get, if you could get 50 to 100 megabits to everyone in Cleveland and especially people who want their kids to be able to have an advantage from internet service or learning or so forth, then it, it is possible to get that down to, you know, a couple hundred dollars per subscriber. Now, it, it doesn't necessarily get you to the gigabits and the, the, the future of what fiber could do for you, um, but it does solve the more immediate need for, you know, basically an order of magnitude less money uh, to do that. Often, um, the service providers have the difficult question of saying, okay, where are they going to get a return? And, and how, how are they going to get a return on it? So obviously, if the government subsidizes, that helps. Okay. And then there's the ability to pay by the consumers. And, well, and if they can only pay $25, $35 a month, that case for $3,000 to fiber to the home, that just does, doesn't make an economic sense for any service provider. And you won't see them doing it unless it becomes subsidized somehow. So while not the most esoteric, beautiful, future-oriented smart city with connection everywhere, there's still a lot you can do. You asked me uh, before the call here about an, an example city. New York mm -hmm. City did the last uh, six, seven years. Had it maybe some problems with connectivity, maybe not as severe as Cleveland, but basically they did use the phone booths where they had phone lines to each of them and they put Wi-Fi access points and all of those. Um, also other places where the phone lines were going and maybe not used anymore and created a free city Wi-Fi network. And I understand there's been a, you know, a moderate level of success uh, from that. That's a very cost-effective system that got and people anywhere who are on the street in New York to be able to get onto the, the public city Wi-Fi, which might be a, a solution that Cleveland wants to look at. Great. That's that's great. Um, thank you. Actually, you know, switching over to the wireless side, Dr. Paul. Um, so when you say, um, you know, like, of course, th there's, there's just tremendous hype around 5G being a game changer. And I think one of one of you on your slides talked about how this is more on, on uh, TV commercials than anything else. Um, but, uh, but you know, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, maybe it is not a hype? Is it is it actually a technical game changer? Um, or does it offer a cost framework where a city should place its bets if we want to um, light up the whole city, right? So, I mean, is that is that something that we should be looking at seriously? Right. So, um, well, I think uh, uh, 5G is real. Uh, the uh, the issue about 5G is that uh, you know it it a lot of hype about this not because not only is it high speed access to phones and perhaps even homes uh, fixed wireless, but also supports a lot of new applications, low latency, high reliability. It will support uh, intelligent transportation, you know, self-driving cars and uh, autom and uh, automated factories. So there's a lot of a lot going on in 5G, and I think a lot of the hype or a lot of the excitement is around those applications, which are not yet arrived, as John pointed out. But coming back to wireless, uh, to 5G, and probably more wireless. One advantage of wireless is that wireless is the only way of reaching mobile people. So for mobility. Uh, pedestrians, cars, uh, people walking around, you need wireless. So that the value of wireless for fixed access, we're talking about fixed access here in our homes, is that you can ride on this infrastructure. If that infrastructure gets built for wire, for, for mobile applications, uh, and uh, we can potentially ride on that for fixed, and that's how I think wireless really plays a role in fixed. I wouldn't really build a wireless system only for fixed access. You just can you can piggyback on that on on a mobile infrastructure. I think that's one issue. But think about wireless. Second thing is 
if you go to suburban and you suddenly go to rural, uh, none of these are going to play. We can't bring in fiber and uh, and copper. DSL is not going to play play well there. And so wireless becomes more and more dominant there. So I think it's, uh, but for dense urban, I think uh, John's comments about using, uh, using uh, copper and using Wi-Fi as a way of distributing, it's uh, actually, there've been uh, some, some trials by Facebook and a little bit by Google I was involved with uh, for citywide Wi-Fi and somehow things didn't quite work. So they ran into a variety of business problems. I, I therefore uh, I think a joint pointed out it's, there's an option there's an option there but it's not without its problems. So to go back to your question, Nigam, Nigam, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Sridhar, I would say that uh, uh, suburban and rural, I think wireless would be more and more dominant. In in urban, uh, uh, a, a, we have to drive a piggyback on uh, the drive for mobile access, and that might help us on fixed access. Yeah, great. Thank you. So actually, so let's let's uh, you know switch over back to the wired thing, right? So so John, you know, you, you showed us that this chart about Australia and and the and the um, uh, you know where where the costs were and things like that. Um, you know, from your chart, I mean, like when you talk about brownfield fiber being almost twice as expensive as greenfield fiber. Well, Cleveland is a legacy city. Most of our infrastructure is decades old, if not a couple hundred years old, right? Um, so what advice would you have for a city like us? Um, and, and can you point to a couple others that are similar, um, you know, perhaps in age and infrastructure who are trying out interesting things that we can learn from? Well, yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's always a tricky problem and there's this, perceptions and then and then reality of, of of homes past and connected is are not the same thing you often see large numbers for homes past uh, for it if an economically viable case you know can be made and that may in an underserved area perhaps cleveland if governments and so forth can make the case that the economy will benefit by making more people productive. Maybe they, they can work at home as we've learned and more people could do that with internet connectivity it has an impact on the economy. And you can make that a, a compelling business case, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for the, the service providers, AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, and so forth to do it. Then you have a better, a better chance at it. Now, you mentioned Google and Facebook. They do have efforts in the, these areas too. And there's two different strengths in those companies. So you you really want a motivated service provider, but sometimes they drag their feet and it, and, and it all comes down to whether they're going to make money on it or not. And so a compelling case has to be made. As you know, Google tried to get into the fiber business and they didn't include the fixed costs, which is a classic mistake for a company that doesn't build infrastructure. And so they had to get out of it because of the they, they were overwhelming themselves with the losses on it. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the AT&T and Verizons and Comcast won't make that mistake because they're in that business. They know um, uh, about it. But getting a compelling case is is what's necessary. I would point to some of the cities in Europe, um, London, the UK uh, in particular, all over Germany. They have smaller cities. Um, it's more distributed population in that country. Some of the best Internet service on Earth, and it's all done on copper. Uh, there, they just got the fiber closer to within a half a kilometer, and that cost them a uh, So the debt of that service provider is much less than some of the others, for instance, in France or in Spain, where they tried to run fiber to everybody's home. They spent too much money. They're now drowning in debt, and the interest payments on the debt is killing 
their, their, their stock prices. Some of them are down by a factor of 10 the last few years from trying to run fiber everywhere because they thought that would be a good initiative, but got overwhelmed by it. So um, th there's, there's some good examples and there's some bad examples. Looking at Europe, some of the countries have made a better use of infrastructure. Some have overspent uh, for it. And um, it's, it's more painful. It requires all kinds of artificial intelligence and software and planning and other things and coordination to use the existing infrastructure. Whereas running a fiber, it's easy. It just runs so fast. You don't have to worry anymore, but it's very, very expensive to do that. So that, that, that's the trade-off and, and um, the um, getting over that laziness of just doing it the easy way. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's far more cost-effective in the long run and it brings service to everywhere, uh, everyone, but they need a compelling business case so they won't do it, the big service providers. Yeah, so actually, if, go ahead. Sorry. I would also comment. Uh, so I think it's all about business case. And uh, the thing is that any business today in the internet provision essentially excludes uh, people who can't afford it because uh, they don't. Uh, so uh, in India, it's interesting uh, to look at India a little bit. Uh, you know, India uh, lives on $1 R2 and 2 or $3 R2 and seem to be going. And uh, one model that which might be looked at and from we can borrow from India is that fiber fiber deployment is expensive and it's right away. So the government has those in a right away in the government's hands. So in India, there's a lot of fiber laid by the government. And then they lease it to the private operators. And I think then they can also insist that there should be equity there, that we give, give you the fiber. You got to make sure that the underserved people also get uh, service. So by holding on to fiber and then controlling the fiber, uh, uh, which is the most efficient way, I think, having a single person doing it and then using that to leverage uh, might be something that we should look at. You, know, you, you just simply have in those that is that is true. It's a huge investment. So you don't want to replicate it necessarily, but you do need to regulate it and make sure that it is is not uh, used as 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 kind of a net neutrality violation or another word for that is monopoly. Um, creating a vertical monopoly where suddenly your service provider can tax all the internet providers that you'd rather, you'd rather have your search engine from Google and your social mm -hmm. networks from Facebook than to get those two from AT&T or Verizon, right? But the idea is there might be, well, they should control that because they're riding on their networks. So there's a, there's a play, uh, there's a, there's a split there that, that, that has to happen. So when you give that type of control to a single monopoly, it's mm -hmm. kind of like the power company or the water company or whatever that there, there has to be uh, a regulation right. of that. And, uh, you know, you, 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 they, they, they don't tell you what device you can plug into the wall. They just provide the electricity, but they don't yeah. tell you what to do with the water. You you know, they just yeah. provide it as opposed to, you know, controlling what you do with the water or the, 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 the electricity would be the same as controlling what you do with the data on the internet. Um, and so finding the right compromise between those interests is uh, is a challenge for every country. Right. And actually, if I, if I can pick, if I can pick on uh, your mention of AI a little bit as well, right? I mean, we talk about artificial intelligence, and I have two questions, and I'll place them both in front of you, and you can address them in any way you like. Um, I mean, when you, you know, first of all, you know, um, uh, if you can explain in a little bit of um, a, a non-technical um, language about how AI could be used to leverage existing infrastructure and, and use that to, uh, to expand connectivity. But then beyond that, um, you know, especially with 
uh, with the mention of companies like Google and Facebook and AI, um, there's immediate red flags that should be going up in people's heads about ethics and and what kinds of data uh, gets collected. I mean, mm -hmm. if everybody, you know, so if if companies like Google and Facebook are providing connectivity to people um, and 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 you know ostensibly doing so in an equitable fashion, they're also um, mining all kinds of data about the people that are <laughs> on those networks, yeah. right? So so you know what what uh, what what is the role of uh, you know, um, who, who's, who's monitoring that? Like, who's, who's making sure that we're not, uh, we're not the product? I'm not sure that the horse may be out of the barn already uh, <laughs> on that, but there's, uh, it's, it's an issue and you try to, you try to get to a balance on all these things, but to use AI uh, on your first question there. Yeah. Um, in this context, it's more about um, how much of the spectrum is, is occupied from a wireless standpoint, if you use all those connections out there and you get Paul's a uh, big uh, promoter of, of MIMO, when you have multiple antennas, you basically can shrink the cell size electronically. You don't have to build a lot of cells. So you get to carve up space and then you carve up the spectrum and you do that on a per device or per use or application basis. It's a complicated problem but mm -hmm. you can solve it with artificial intelligence to say, okay, this is how I'm going to divide up the spectrum. And, and you'd find that at every point in space and all the spectrum we have, that there's, there's a huge bandwidth that's already there. If you use wireless property properly and you get close enough and you have many antennas around you in different directions that are all supplying some energy, there is a way to combine that and use it productively. Um, it's done partially today in 4G networks, 5G will do more of that. 6G Wi-Fi tries to do some of it. A lot of this will go to the cloud. But the, the information that's nece necessary for that can be anonymized, can be segregated. In fact, my company has a project where we're doing that for Google, Facebook, and some others. Uh, from our, we, we, we manage about 100 million internet connections, but we can't give away the data. Mm -hmm. the even the data that we're not giving away is like, how fast was it running at a certain time of day? And did the signal look good or were there noise sources or other things? So it's not the personal data. Mm. It's really the health of the connection itself. So that's really the only data that, that you need. Now, you, you could, if you're exceptionally smart, put a smart system on top of this. So, okay, I see so much data at the same time every day. That means, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going on the Internet and they're probably running this application. Somebody might be able to infer that. But it's not like your your name, your address, and and your credit card numbers, and all that kind of stuff is is not the type of information that's necessary to manage the resources, uh, so that they're more fairly and equitably distributed. But it, it, it's not an easy problem. It's yeah. a complicated math problem. But as computers and AI gets better and better, you'll see more and more of that. Great. So so you know you both mentioned government, and and Paul particularly, you talked about government in India, um, you know, owning a lot of the infrastructure. So what, what, uh, what can, you know, so if we think about it from, from the perspective of the city um, and city administration, what role can the city or the county play in, in terms of actually building out a, an, an open access network, perhaps, um, you know, perhaps something that can lease um, and, and how, how can, um, you know, the, the, the government um, in this context, play a role in, in ensuring equitable access to connectivity? I would uh, comment uh, by saying that, uh, and I think this is a complicated subject. It has many, many dimensions, so there's no simple answer. But uh, uh, I've sat on two boards of uh, wireless uh, internet service providers. 
And it's really the business model of, of a big Wall Street uh, company where you got to show profit. You automatically exclude the people who, you know, are the weaker sections of the economy, of the of the of the of the uh, population, and uh, and you create all this internet equity problems. So business model is really the block, and uh, and I think uh, the, so I think if we have to find ways, and of course this will be fought in court, is by which we got to mandate that uh, service providers who provide and obviously they they have to make money, are somehow mandated to provide access. Uh, 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 basic minimum access to the underserved population and find ways of enforcing that. Uh, otherwise, I think in the current Wall Street model, uh, we're never going to uh, serve those people because uh, the, 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 all the incentives are wrong. Yeah, is there any example at all in the US of there being a city or a county government uh, being involved in this context? There, there is. Um, I believe it's Chattanooga, Tennessee is at least one of them. Uh, I, I, I don't know the details of it, but there have been some municipal efforts. They are typically troubled by two things. First off, they are competitive with the major service providers who try to go to the FCC and, and lobby against or, or the federal government somehow prevent that from happening. Um, so you, you, you have that. And then often the local municipality doesn't have at least the infrastructure experience in telecom to be able to do that. So they get way behind schedule, way behind budget. It's like any construction project. You put a, put a room on your house, it, it winds up taking three times longer and twice as much as the original quote, right, to get it yeah. done. It's, it, it, if you're not an expert at it, um, it becomes, but those companies are the expert. So it needs to be balanced, those, those two interests. And uh, I think ultimately, the, the solution will follow the lines of the um, it's, it's very, very difficult for service providers to accept the concept of what you call You can call it dumb pipes or smart pipes mm -hmm. uh, either, either way of being able to have everyone flow on their pipes and get a small return for that, but have nothing to do with the content that flows other than, you know, some content may, may cost more to deliver more quickly but as long as that's fair across everybody who has that type of content and wants to deliver it more quickly, fine. But to not go into that business. But that sounds like dumb pipe, pipes. And most of the CEOs of, of big service providers, I know many of them myself, they are very hostile to that concept because it, it implies that they are kind of a non-interesting company that can't grow anymore or take advantage of this, this internet world that's, that's evolving. Nonetheless, uh, more and more of the control is is flowing to AWS, Microsoft Azure, uh, Google's uh, cloud services uh, are all, um, you know, increasingly being used by the service providers to virtualize the control of their network. So um, there is a uh, there is a a balance, and I don't think anyone's quite found that yet. But when you get to that balance, then then you'll have the best for everyone. But as far as is Cleveland or other I, getting a, a large amount of money from a government source and then prudently using that on your infrastructure, getting the right advice, not spending too much per home and getting some balance, but having a group that that is an expert in that have the right business case to come in and do it. That's going to be your fastest way to deployment. Uh, but it's not it's not necessarily an easy maybe finding the money may not be that easy, but actually using it wisely is right. going to be the most important part.
So, um, so I, by the way, I, I've been getting questions from the public um, on on this phone here. So, so you know, uh, so I've already been bringing them in. So, there's a question here um, uh, to, to Paul. Um, so, so there's a nonprofit in Cleveland um, that's actually using that fixed midband technology that you discussed to bring connectivity directly to homes in underserved neighborhoods. Could you speak a little bit more about this technology and its potential to bridge the digital divide more efficiently than, say, fiber? Right. So, so this is a, so you know in five G there are two bands, the high band and the mid band, and the mid band is sometimes called the FR one, frequency range one, and there is a technology called massive MIMO, uh, where you have hundreds of antennas on a panel, and because the frequencies are high, two point five gigahertz or three point five gigahertz, you can have one hundred twenty eight or two fifty six antennas on a panel, and then you can get the very high efficiencies in terms of spectral efficiency. You can throw out, uh, say, seven, eight times more throughput than a standard LTE cell. And uh, and the bands are 3.5. Now, you can get reasonable penetration, like 800 meters of range. And therefore, uh, this uh, this looks to be uh, an interactive technology. And uh, right now, uh, massive MIMO are now available from all the all the guys, uh, Nokia, Samsung, uh, uh, Ericsson, and Huawei, and the Chinese vendors. And the prices are dropping. And in fact, I'm in a board of a company where we also deploy uh, the, the, the FR1 band uh, as an underlay band. So uh, so I think it's very exciting technology. It's MIMO technology, which is going to give you much, much more throughput than the, the current LTE standard. So, so 5G actually incorporated this massive MIMO properly. 4G did not. So I think... Uh, 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 in the 2.5 to 3.5, 3.8 gigahertz band, there's a lot of band coming on stream now, 180 megahertz of 3.7 to 3.88 from FCC next this month or next month. So, I, and with prices dropping for, 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 the, for the base stations, you're going to see uh, perhaps eight to 10 times or even more of wireless bandwidth available now. And some of that is consumed by, by by phones, but a lot of it can be moved to wireless, to fixed wireless too. So I think a lot of good things are happening. Really lowering, lowering of cost, increasing efficiency, and uh, and a lot of learning curve. I'm actually very heavily involved in that space, but uh, good things are happening. Great. Thank you. So this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, before we let you go, I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, you know, if you could take a, just maybe 10, 15 seconds each to answer this. Are we to the point where this, uh, a city has to basically consider internet access to be a public service like water or sewer in order to make significant progress in deployment? I will let me go first to saying that my own, uh, you know, uh, understanding of the business of, of wireless ISPs is that you got to do that. Right now, uh, the, there's a lot of cherry picking going on. And uh, and uh, unless there is some counter pressure from the city or from the community saying you got to serve the uh, the lowest part of the pyramid, otherwise you're not really going to do business. Uh, they will never get served. So uh, so I believe we got to make some kind of utility type uh, uh, concept and bring in and bring in uh, regulations to support it. John? Yeah, so I've asked, been asked this question before. Hopefully, you'll like my answer on it. But they, they, we have, of course, up there food and and water and, and energy, which I'll point out is usually an electromagnetic wave also. So we electrical engineers like Paul and I can be proud. The fourth one on the list I would put is information or communication. 
And I wouldn't put it in fourth position. I argue, and I tell the young students when I teach at Stanford, that, that I would put it in the first position. Because if you couldn't communicate with anyone, it wouldn't matter whether you had any water or food. Uh, and if, if you think praying is a form of communication, take that away and, and you have nothing left uh, at that point. So I think we are reaching that stage where data and information is becoming important to maintaining our lives and, and what we do in the future. Obviously, it was not like that 100 years ago, but we're on the verge of, of this where it's essential to staying alive. Well, that, that, I did like that answer. Thank you. Um, I, I, and it's been, a, it's been a fascinating discussion and I have you know, a dozen more questions sitting here, um, you know, but uh, we want to be respectful of your time. Um, th thank you all for joining us uh, for today's forum on how broadband technologies can help build a 21st century city featuring Dr. John Chiaffi. He's the chairman and CEO of ASEA Inc. and Hitachi Professor Emeritus of Engineering at Stanford University. And Dr. Arogyasami Paulraj, uh, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Electrical Engineering at Stanford University. Thank you so much for your time, both of you, and for uh, sharing um, your thoughts and, um, and, and, and technical innovations. Today's forum is sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation. Our community partner is the Marconi Society. We appreciate their support of City Club programming. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on their website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting this work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. I am Dr. Nigaman Sridhar, a professor of computer science at Cleveland State University and a proud City Club member. Thank you for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned.